You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Today on our Harbor City campus, Pastor Ken Bringus continues our Death to Selfie series with a message on the life of Daniel. This morning, I'm going to skip ahead because we've got communion today, and I want us to spend time at the Lord's table. It's very important for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper every single uh, month as a community of faith. There's something to this that communicates to us the love of God and brings to us a sense of, you know, we were talking about it today. If you ever feel lost in your life and you need to get your bearings, one of the best places to start is to come back to the foot of the cross. It's to come back to the basic truth that Christ died for us and that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. But we exchange our junk and sin and old life for his righteousness. So we want to celebrate at the Lord's table, but I have something I need to say to you, so I'm going to, I'm going to condense this message, all right? I want to talk with you this morning about the difference between surviving and thriving. If you were to look at this past year, and by the way, it's almost Christmas. I hope that gets some of you excited. For some of you are like, oh no, that's a really stressful season. Don't think about it right now. I want you to actually think back to this past year. And I want you to turn to the person next to you and be real vulnerable, and I want you to just, you're gonna give a one-word answer. Has the, this past year so far felt more like surviving or thriving for you, all right? Just a one-word answer, or if it's both, you can say both, okay, fine. <laughs> Bail yourself out. But turn to someone next to you and just say one word, surviving, thriving. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, it's just one word. It's just one word. You don't have to explain. You don't have to explain it. (laughs) Calm down. You're good. You'll be okay. All right, so the Lakers have been surviving for the past four years. But I'm happy to announce. I'm so overjoyed to announce. Did you see those pregame? Oh, man that they are about to enter a season of thriving. (laughs) Which, of course, means winning, right? But we know that in reality, there are times in our life where we just, we gotta switch to survival mode, right? We we get that. And of course, the, the challenge is, how do you go from surviving to thriving? There's almost like this transition thing. And many of us are stuck between survival and thriving. Because Survival is about getting by. It's about doing like all that you need to do to just like stay alive. That's survival. Where thriving is something else. Thriving has a different goal. Thriving is about fulfilling your purpose. It's about finding meaning. It's about making a contribution that's beyond you. So there are two different goals, but how many of you know that we often get stuck in between? And so today you can kind of figure out that if your focus is survival, um, you know, for example, like in the area of your, your job, if your focus is survival and you believe that money is the only thing standing between you and starvation, you're going to go out and get whatever job will pay you the most money. It doesn't matter what it is. Am I right? Because the goal is what? Survival. But if your goal is to thrive then you're not going to choose any old job out there, are you? You're going to choose the job that is most 
enjoyable, where it suits your natural ability and personality, where it has long-term benefit and potential, right? That would be if you're wanting to thrive. If you're wanting to just merely survive, you don't need to build relationships with anybody. All you need to do is figure out how to use people. You'll survive. But if you want to thrive, then you're going to need to build high-quality relationships with other people because that truly is bringing meaning to your life. It's the same way in the life of faith. We don't often realize that we're in survival mode when we were intended to thrive. Jesus said it this way, I have come that you might have life, and not just life that survives, life abundant, overflowing. This is a life that is thriving. Tell the person next to you, God wants your soul to thrive. And so we need to learn how to switch from survival mode and, and start thinking about what does it mean to thrive. Um, like I said earlier, some of us just need to switch on the survival mode. Like, I get it, right? I was a student in school, all of you students in the room, and I know what it's like to go through finals week or that week of that battery of tests that you have to take, and what are you thinking? How do I just get through this week, right? I get that. Some of you at your job, when you get evaluated every quarter, every six months, every year, right, how do I survive the evaluation? For some of you parents, you're just looking at summer as a summer of survival. How do I survive the summer and finally get the kids back into school, right? Sometimes we need to switch on survival mode. It's not wrong. But, however, the goal ultimately in the life and journey of faith in Christ is how do I, how do I thrive? Now watch. I'm going to throw a wrench into this because the, the character I want us to look at today found himself in a situation he had to survive. But what you see at the end of his story is not only did he survive in hostile situations and circumstances, he ended up at the end of his life thriving. I want to talk with you this morning about a guy named Daniel. And from Daniel's life, we're going to learn that the circumstances that often prompt us to survive can become invitations to build a life that thrives. Daniel's story is about how, okay, how many, okay you know who I'm talking about, right? Daniel and the lion's as I grew up in Sunday school, this is how I understood and related to Daniel. He's the dude that survived the lions. But that's not what the story really is about. Daniel's story is, watch this, it's about how to thrive in hostile circumstances. How to thrive in seasons of transition. How to thrive when everything around you is counter the way you were raised counter to the beliefs and values that you hold. Daniel thrived, watch this, as a man of God, not in church, not in religious positions. He thrived in a government position through six Babylonian kings and one Persian king. Seven different ungodly kings over the course of 70 years. Listen, no one in that time survived in a position like that for 70 years. But Daniel did it. He thrived in a life he would have never have chosen for himself. How many of you sometimes feel like, I would have never, if I had to choose all over again, I would have never chosen to do what I did. 
And you feel sometimes like stuck because you, you, you feel helpless because, man, I didn't choose to be here. Someone else chose. And here I am. Ever feel like that? I've got some encouragement for you. <laughs> Daniel was able to thrive in a situation just like that. So I'm going to read the story to you from Daniel chapter 1. So you can take out your notes or you can take out your cell phones and turn on your Bible if you need to or pull the Bible up in front of you. And you can look up on the screen. Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to do some running commentary and then give you two things that Daniel does to thrive in Babylon. It says here, during the reign of the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is the main context of Daniel's story. The, the fall of the city of Jerusalem in 587 BCE, if you lived in Jerusalem back then, you would have experienced and witnessed a marauding army of Babylonians invading your city, spreading destruction everywhere. Not only would you probably see some of your friends and family and government officials and stuff like that beaten up, maybe even put to death, taken prisoner, homes would be destroyed and burned, people's possessions would be taken from them. And for the Jewish community in Jerusalem at that time, the temple was the central religious symbol of their identity as a nation. So folks, this is a big deal. This book starts out with this tragic event. It would be like if, uh, if like ISIS attacked the White House and actually succeeded and took over this nation. That's the, that's the kind of ground-shaking event this was. Because the... The fall of Jerusalem marked the end of the Jewish nation. So this is big, folks. This is huge. Now watch this. Spiritually speaking, this isn't just um, you know, Babylon conquering Israel. In a spiritual sense, this is the gods of Babylon conquer the gods of Israel. This is why it starts out by saying, or in the second verse you'll see that um, Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the articles of the temple of God and puts them in the storehouse of his God. Why? Because in the understanding of the ancient world, it's not just one power takes over another, it's the God of that nation conquers the God of that nation. And, and in this case, Nebuchadnezzar takes the articles of the temple of the Lord, puts them in the storehouse of the Babylonian god Marduk, which basically says to everyone and their mother, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, he's weak, he's powerless, and he's defeated. Now watch how Daniel reports this. This is really cool. Look what Daniel, Daniel is the one writing this book, okay? He says, what does he say? The Who? The Lord gave him, who's him? Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. Watch this. What did God do? He permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Oh, so this is not Nebuchadnezzar stole the object. No, no. God permitted. 
Like, Daniel knew something that the king of Babylon did it. He didn't know. That the Lord God is sovereign over all the nations and kingdoms of the earth. And he is in control. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how bad this gets. It doesn't matter whether the Babylonian king says, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is defeated. God is in control and he's still on the throne. Some of you need to remind yourself of that. When you look at the circumstances of your life and it looks like the devil is winning, it looks like life is winning, it looks like God is defeated, you need to remember it looked like that on Friday night when Jesus was crucified. But Sunday came. And Daniel realizes this, that nothing happens outside the sovereign rule of God. He is still in control. Tell your neighbor, he's still in control. Come on. He's still in control. (laughs) So Nebuchadnezzar takes all this stuff back to the land of Babylonia, puts him in the treasure house of his God, right? And then it says... Well, let me, let me just tell you something really quick as I read this next verse about Babylon. Folks, Babylon in scripture was the personification of evil, all right? Whenever heaven thinks about all the worst that could possibly happen on earth in terms of the accumulation of human evil and sin, it uses the word Babylon. And so, you gotta remember, like, this is, this is a really evil place because the religion of Babylon was built on the practice of the occult and on the manipulation of demonic power. That's Babylon's religion. So watch what happens. Watch what happens. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Now, I love how Daniel, because Daniel's writing this, I love how he describes these, these, these guys of nobility, right? He's, he's so humble when he describes this. He goes, yeah, you know, we were young men without physical defect. We were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, right? That's us, dudes, right? These guys were studs. Except, well, I'll show you something in a second. Look at They were to teach these young men the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Not just the history of Babylon, but that's code word for the astrology and the occult practices of Babylon. Think about this. So what what does the king do? I'm I'm gonna enroll you. You must enroll in this three-year master's program of astrology and the occultic arts. Oh, and by the way, you need to learn our language too. Oh, and by the way, you need to learn our history too. Think about the equivalent of that today, right? This is not making any sense, right? How in the world is Daniel, as a man of God, a man of faith, going to survive this? It doesn't stop there. It says in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And then among those, here it is, uh, were chosen some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, The chief official gave them new names. So, hey, I'm not just going to take you away from your family. I'm not just going to take away your temple. I'm not just going to take away your land. I'm not just going to take away the land of your upbringing, your home. I'm going to take away your name, your very sense of identity. I'm going to go as deep as we possibly can with this. Now, watch this. These three, four guys were named 
somewhere in their name was reference to God. Daniel meant my judge is Elohim. Um, Hananiah meant under Yahweh's grace. Shadrach means, I'm sorry, Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means servant of Yahweh. They all had godly names. But Babylon, and this official, renames them according to the gods of Babylon. This is crazy. We're going to strip you of everything you've got. Now watch, there's another dynamic here. And uh, parents, you can explain this to your kids later, but I need to say it because it's just fascinating. This chief of officials, the literal language says they're chief of the eunuchs. Daniel and his three friends, most scholars agree that part of this process of training was to emasculate all of them. Because they served in the king's court and the king has a harem and what do you do? How do you deal with the problem of really handsome young guys all of a sudden being exposed to the king's harem? Well, you take care of that real quick. You emasculate them. They become eunuchs. So not only did you take away my temple, not only did you take away my land and my family and changed my name, you took away my capacity to reproduce and my future. You took it away. So I don't care what situation you're in today. (laughs) It can't be as bad as Daniel and his three friends right now. Let's put it in perspective. And yet, watch what Daniel does. So let's see how he handles all this. They, uh, they're about to give him food, but it says here, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this, this way. So God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel, but the official told Daniel, hey, I'm afraid of my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any of the other, other young men your age? No, my king, the king would have my head because of you. Now, I love this because Daniel, in light of everything that is being stripped from him, he picks a particular battle here. And he says, you know what? There's one area I'm not going to compromise when it comes to my identity, and that is my diet. Because what it meant to be a Jew was you, you, had, to, you had to live by certain dietary laws. And he says, I'm not going to defile that part of my life. But watch, what, look how he does it, I love this. He doesn't say, no way am I going to eat pork. He doesn't he doesn't say, I'm not eating, you can force me. I'm going to die before you give me that piece of pig. You know what, he doesn't say that. He's like, let me, um, let me tread lightly here. So he talks to the official, and he kind of goes down the pecking order, right? He's like, hey, you know what? Um, I don't want let's, to, let's do an experiment. We're not used to eating all that kind of food. Maybe you can test us. I love that. Like Daniel does this in such a humble way. And then eventually, they agree with him. It's like Daniel said to the guard, who appointed, who the chief official had appointed, he said, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And all the vegetarians in the house said, I didn't think there were many of you. 
<laughs> Amen. <laughs> then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So I love it. He's like, listen, in Jerusalem, we could stand and go, there is absolutely no compromise on the law of God in Jerusalem. But now he's in Babylon. He's in a whole new territory. What's Daniel doing? He's like, let me see. Let me see if I can, watch this, improvise without compromise. Let me see if I can improvise without compromise. And he says, test us. And you decide whether or not we're healthy or not. I love that. Because see, here, listen, this is the big question before us today. How do I remain faithful to God in a hostile situation? How do I remain faithful to God when everything has been taken away, when my identity has been stripped by this new culture that has taken me captive? Folks, whether you know it or not, you and I are captive to this culture in a certain way. We swim in the spirit of materialism, individualism, secularism, consumerism in this culture. Folks, we are no longer in Jerusalem, spiritually speaking. We are in a digital Babylon. And this is an important question for the people of God. How do we stay faithful to God in Babylon? Well, I want you to see what happens here. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the, the official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Watch this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them how many times better? Ten times better. Then all the magicians, astrologers, enchanters in his whole kingdom. And watch this. Daniel remained there for 70 years until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, for 70 years, Daniel gave faithful and fruitful service in the court of several wicked kings. He learned to thrive in a context that was so countercultural to the way he was brought up. We live in a day and age, folks, where the church, the institution of the church, has declined, and no one's looking to us anymore for any kind of spiritual authority. They're looking to science, they're looking to the left, some are looking to the right, politically speaking. <laughs> and we've kind of lost our moral center. We're living in Babylon. How does Daniel end up thriving in Babylon? A couple thoughts on that, you ready? And with this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to wrap it up because I wanna, I wanna partake at the Lord's table today. Babylon changed their name, their diet, their education. Daniel, Daniel's future as a man was taken away and capacitated, right? Creative capacity was removed, all of that. Daniel could have crumbled under the pressure. Daniel could have rumbled and revolted under the pressure. Or he could have grumbled. When the pressure of this culture hits your life, when 
the pressure of this culture becomes overwhelming, or maybe not even this culture, just whatever situation you're facing, what do you end up doing? Do you crumble under the pressure? Do you rumble? Do you go like, no, no, I'm going to fight. Or do you grumble? Do you grow bitter and complain and waste away in your bitterness and complaining? What do you do? Well, what do you think Daniel did? Instead of grumbling, crumbling, or rumbling, Daniel and his friends grew humble. They grew wise. They became creative and excellent in their expression of loyalty to God. So here it is. You ready? This is how I think Daniel thrives. The first thing you see him doing here is you see him experimenting in faithfulness. He experiments in faithfulness. Let me explain this. He doesn't compromise his loyalty with God or to God but he finds a way to improvise his faith so that he can serve a godless king and still remain loyal to God. How many of you work secular jobs in this room? You have a boss that's not a Christian. You can serve your boss who's godless or maybe whoever has whatever kind of views. You can serve in a secular environment and still remain loyal to God. Now, you might have expected Daniel to be like, no, we're going to resist all that. We're going to be faithful to God. We're going to be like, we're going to stand out. But he doesn't do that. He's like, let's experiment with this. He's like negotiating to start out. Let, let, let me put it this way. We all know what it's like to experiment with sin, Right? Can you think back to how, when you were younger, some of you older folks in the room? <laughs> we know what it's like to experiment with sin. Stop experimenting with sin. Why don't you start experimenting with faithfulness and holiness and righteousness? Because listen, everything that Jesus tells us to do in the Gospels requires to some level an experiment of discipleship. You want to give me, let me give you an example. When, when he says, when Jesus says to us, turn the other cheek, you're going to have to figure out in your context, what does that look like? What does that mean? When somebody offends me, when somebody hurts me, and in some ways, Jesus doesn't spell out all the detail. He says, just, here's the principle, turn the other cheek, and you got to take that, and you got to experiment with that. When Jesus says to the young rich ruler, sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor, He's not saying, you know, empty out your bank account. But listen, why don't you try and experiment, sell something that you own and give it away. Give the proceeds to the poor and see what kind of life, see what kind of impact that's going to have on you. When he says, love your enemies, how many of you got enemies in the room? No, I don't have enemies. No, everyone likes me. (laughs) Some of you have enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. And you're like, "Well, well, how do I do that? Experiment. Send them a nice card, right? Buy them McDonald's. I don't know if that's going to be a blessing for them. or (laughs) Do something kind, right? Jesus doesn't spell it out. He expects us to experiment. Spiritual disciplines require experimentation. There's no real rule book on this, folks, especially when we're living in Babylon. So you got, here's what you got to do. You gotta set up the foundation. We know the foundation is 
pursuing Christ-likeness, being faithful and honoring to the Lord, growing in virtue, that's the foundation, that's the goal. Now work backwards and go, how can I improvise to maybe get there? Because the, the way isn't always clear cut. You know, Dallas Willard used to talk, some of you know who Dallas Willard is, he's a professor at USC, and he passed away a few years ago. Had a very profound influence as a spiritual father and theologian on the, in the area of spiritual formation and discipleship for a lot of leaders, Christian leaders in America. Um, he used to talk about, when he, was a, when he was a professor, he would create spiritual disciplines. Because the Holy Spirit would convict him, like one time the Holy Spirit convicted him that in his classroom as a professor, he would be teaching his students, right? And then there would always be one student that would want to contend with what he had to say, right? That would want to resist and argue and debate. And he always felt the pressure to have the final word because, hey, you know what? I know more than you. I've got the degree. You, you know, I'm teaching you. You're not teaching me, right? And so the Holy Spirit would convict him of this tendency he had to always have the last word. And so what he did was he developed the discipline. And you know what his discipline was? The spiritual discipline that he created was? He said, I am going, whenever a student tries to debate with me, I am not going to respond by trying to have the last word. So, you know, students would take him, you know, they would contend with whatever idea he was presenting, and instead he would just smile and he would say, thank you for that comment, and he'd walk away. <laughs> because he needed to deal with the thing in his heart that was saying, you must show that you're more powerful. You must show that you're more knowledgeable. You see? What is that? Yeah, it's pride. So spiritual disciplines need to be experimental. Some of you, okay, don't take this like wrong, but some of you, like, you talk way too much. Right? And it's okay if you're trying to communicate something, but sometimes it gets you into trouble. What kind of spiritual discipline do you think you could experiment with and create so that you could become a little more like Jesus in that area? I'll give you one. I Just an idea. It's called... <laughs> I was going to say zip your mouth. It's, it's called stillness and silence. Practice some of that on a regular basis, 15 minutes a day. Practice not reacting verbally to your spouse when they nag you. That's a spiritual discipline. When, when it's connected to Jesus, you're showing me how much I'm not like you in this area of my life. You see? That's the difference. How can I begin practicing something so I can become more like you by your grace? That's what a spiritual discipline is. If I put in front of you right now a sheet of music that was like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and I said, play this piece of music on the piano. How many of you play the piano in the room? Wow, really? Okay, except for Dave and, and myself. Okay, uh, how about guitar? <laughs> Let's say you played the piano, right? And I just say, hey, play Beethoven's Fifth. You wouldn't probably be able to play, right? Because there's no way. How can I play? I don't have the dexterity in my fingers. I don't have the skill yet. So what do you do? Do you just say, oh, I give up, forget it. It's, it's hopeless. I can never get there. Absolutely not. What do you do? You start practicing 
You start practicing scales, you start practicing certain types of patterns, and you do it slowly at first. You do it, build on it, right? You slow down the tempo, do it, until over time what happens? You become capable of actually playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and reading it right off the sheet. That's kind of how spiritual disciplines work. And listen, I'm telling you, some of you are stuck in this mentality that it has to be a certain way at a certain time and doing this. And, and those are fine when it's, when it's appropriate. But most of the spiritual disciplines you're going to need to experiment with, you already know the areas in your life that need to change. And before Jesus, you need to say, God, what can I do? What small thing can I do to get me down the road that invites your grace to change me in this area? I love this about Daniel. He is open to experimenting with his faithfulness to God. The, le- the second thing you see, Daniel, and th- with this I close, well, you see this value for excellence. Look at this. It says in Daniel 6.3, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit, say an excellent spirit, excellent was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Whoa, you're actually going to make a Hebrew that you brought out of exile, who doesn't serve the same gods of Babylon, you're going to give him that much power over the kingdom? Yeah, why, why, why? Because he had an excellent spirit. An excellent spirit is marked by at least four things. You better write this down, young people. You ready? Because this applies to you. Number one, treating others with humility or humble respect. Daniel, um, you see Daniel doing this all throughout the book. He served a godless king and he got promoted by a godless king. You don't get promoted in any kind of position by whether they're godless or godly, it doesn't matter. You don't get promoted in a job when you're talking behind the boss's back. You don't get promoted in the job when you are always rolling your eyes at what the boss tells you. Or when you're typing out crazy criticisms on Facebook about your job. You're not going to get promoted. There's evidence in this text that King Nebuchadnezzar this godless king actually likes Daniel. Because the first dream he has, he's all puzzled by the dream. He's so anxious about this dream that he has and he calls all the astrologers into his room and goes, I want you to tell me what my dream means. And all the astrologers are like, yes, we'll do this king, we'll do this king. And they say, so tell us what the dream is. And he's like, no, no, you're gonna tell me what I dreamed. And then you're gonna tell me what it means. Because then if you tell me what I actually dreamed, then I'll know that your interpretation is real. And the astrologers are like, no, there's no way. Right? Until Daniel gets there. Daniel not only tells, he seeks God, right? And then he tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, wow, you, your God is the true God. So Daniel, tell me the interpretation. And Daniel, look what Daniel says. He goes, king, I'm about to give you the interpretation, but... I wish this interpretation was for your enemies and not for you. In other words, king, I would hate for what I'm about to say, I would hate for it to happen to you. 
what is going on there? Does Daniel actually like his boss? I don't know what's going on, but I do know. This is what he, he's doing. He's treating his boss with respect, with humble respect. The second thing, an excellent spirit is about doing the right thing when no one is looking. I don't know if I need to even go into that. Nowadays, man, we don't so often have to worry about, you know, getting persecuted for our faith and all that. Um, but what we need to do, the principle Daniel practices, is he does what is right even though, even though no one's looking. And even though people are persecuting him, he does what is right. See, it doesn't matter, does it, if your boss isn't around when everyone else around you is slacking off. It doesn't matter if everyone around you is cheating on the test and no one's looking. Will you still do the right thing? Will you live your life before Jesus and determine that only his opinion counts, right? That's an excellent spirit. I'm going to do the right thing even when no one is looking. The third thing, oops, sorry, going the extra mile. You have an excellent spirit when you're willing to do more than what's required of you. And so, if you work a job right now and you're getting $15 an hour, why don't you approach your job as if you were getting $30 an hour? Do more than is expected of you. I guarantee you, in a while, someone's going to take notice. And someone's going to go, you know what? I don't care, Christian or not, whether he agrees with my political views, I don't care. He deserves an upgrade. You see? That's an excellent spirit. Lastly, give your best and then keep growing. Notice that Daniel could care less about the name change, the fact they changed his name. But Daniel does not sit back in the back of the classroom and protest all the ungodly stuff that his teachers are teaching him. He sits in that classroom learning the language and the literature of the Babylonians and guess what? He is the top student in the class. All right, I'll learn it. Bring it on. Teach it to me. This is so awesome, guys. Three years of studying the language, three years of studying astrology and occultic practices and all that, the history of Babylon, and Daniel doesn't get corrupted. In fact, when push comes to shove, Daniel gets to stand on a grand stage and say, guess what? I know your history. I know all your ungodly practices, and I know a God in heaven who is real. And he's the real deal. And he's more powerful than all of that. He gets to actually witness to the God of heaven and for the God of heaven because he sat in the classroom and was an excellent student. Come on. Now listen, um, we're done. I, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, all right? Because I know some of you in the room, you're going, oh gosh, that's so much pressure. We're not talking about perfection. We're simply talking about not stagnating in what God has given you. Taking what you've been given from God, whether it's little or much, and saying, God, I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to grow in this. I'm going to have an excellent spirit that says, how can I get better? How can I keep growing? 
You know, in educational theory, there's a new thing out there that they've been introducing. I've been hearing it in my kids' public school. They're saying that you that the kids, you should all have a growth mindset. You heard that? Kids in school, you heard the growth mindset, right? Versus a fixed mindset. Um, let me explain that and then we'll, we'll pray. Um, there was a, 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 a gal years ago that studied how students responded to failure when they didn't achieve. And she found that there were one or two ways to respond. Some students would fail, and then they would say to themselves, I'm just a bad student. I can't grow. I can't learn this stuff. That's called a fixed mindset. And then there were some students, didn't matter what kind of adversity they were going through, that after they failed, they continued to get back up and keep moving. And they actually ended up doing better in their school, in academics. They would put in the extra time, they would put in the extra effort, and it actually led to higher achievement. And so she came up with this theory that basically said, students will succeed when they believe that they can actually get better. When they don't believe they can get better, their mindset is fixed and they actually don't get better. You need to have a growth mindset. Even when you've failed, however miserably you've failed, to be able to say, I can still get better. I can still grow in Jesus. God is still at work. God is still in control. He's doing something in my life. I'm going to get back up and keep growing and keep improving and keep learning because honestly, if you're not growing, if you're not improving in some small way, if you're not learning new skills, you're probably falling behind. So whatever you do, and whatever God has given you to do, take small steps. Get better at it. That's having an excellent spirit. Let me close with this, and I'm going to ask the communion service to come up. So Daniel, what does he do? How does he thrive in Babylon? He experiments with faithfulness. How can I remain loyal to God, but maybe not in the same way that they taught me in Jerusalem? And God honors it because of his heart. But Daniel also values excellence. And he, and he sticks around for a long time because he has a growth mindset. He's a learner. He respects people humbly. He does more than what's required, you see. Now here's what's going to stop you from doing just that. The mentality that says or this nagging thought that says, you know what? I am not good enough. I've tried, it didn't work, I must not be good enough. And today, as I invite you to the Lord's table, I want us to address that issue. You know what that is? That's called shame. Shame will stop you from pursuing excellence as a value. Shame will stop you from experimenting in faithfulness to God. Shame will just stick you in this cycle of, I just go to church, feel bad about myself, remind myself Jesus loves me, and then all oh, go through this old cycle. And shame will stick you in the cycle of that nagging sense of, it's whatever I do is not good enough. It's all over our lives, folks. This is the effect of the fall. And I'm here to tell you, God wants to address that today. Jesus has taken your shame. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. So as you come today, 
as you think, God, where can I begin to apply excellence in my life? Where can I begin to experiment with, your, with faithfulness and holiness and righteousness in my life? I want you to remember, Jesus has dealt with your shame. You are good enough because of him. Amen? Stand to your feet. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.